Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. This is the 200th podcast in our series about people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. We wanted to mark the occasion by looking back at some of the extraordinary people we've met along the way and the programs they've developed to fight the opioid crisis in our country. We begin with some of the people from over a dozen programs we've profiled on programs to get those who need it into treatment. Now, sometimes it takes the leverage of criminal justice to get someone to agree to go through treatment. On one of our very first shows, we met with Judge David Mattia, who introduced us to his drug court in Cleveland, Ohio, in Episode 3. Drug court is a specialized docket where you know, our focus is to reduce recidivism. Um, dependency causes crime. Untreated dependency will continue to cause crime. So if we treat the cause of the crime-driving disease, we get a guy or gal who goes back to society healthy and productive. They help their kids with homework. They hold a job. They pay taxes. They don't get arrested again. They don't get a public defender assigned. They don't uh, uh, have the state pay for their prison. Um, so it is the opposite of a vicious cycle. We throw extra resources at the disease. We get them treatment. Uh, we hold them accountable. Um, there's various things we make them do. Uh, and uh, most people come out doing very well long-term. Even those who flunk out of drug court do well long-term. Judge Mattia was also an inspiration behind our focus on people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic with the thoughts that he shared with us. And most importantly, avoiding the people, places, and things uh, that they were associating with when they used. It's, it's that simple. People, places, and things sound simple, but you avoid those triggers, the people, the places, the things associated with using, you have a much better chance of staying clean. In Buffalo, New York, we met Judge Craig Hanna, who introduced us to the country's only opioid court in Episode 165. Drug court is normally a post-disposition court. Our opioid intervention court is a predisposition court. So the second someone is arrested, we try to divert them to treatment within 24 hours, whether it's medically assisted, behavioral treatment, which is more like clinical, inpatient, outpatient, and group counseling, and we try to get them back on path. Our job is just to make sure we keep them stabilized so we can, they can actually make a more traditionally based drug court. Because we were finding out over the course of the last two or three years, a lot of our participants, and we call them participants, not defendants, because we want to instill hope in them. Mm -hmm. A lot of our participants were not making it to drug court because they were ODing before they had a chance to have their charges adjudicated. Outstanding. So um, drug courts, many of them go for a year, six mm -hmm. months to a year, I think it is, Yes, for the most part. Your court. How long does it go? How long are they under your supervision? Well, typically they should be out of our court within 90 days because in a misdemeanor, according to our state laws, they want a misdemeanor handled within 90 days. Something as simple as obtaining reliable transportation to and from treatment can be an insurmountable obstacle to recovery for some. In episode 121, I spoke with Tom Olmsted about a unique program his team developed 
that provides free Uber rides for those in treatment at St. Vincent Charity Medical Center in Cleveland, Ohio. We took a traditional route, um, which is uh, challenging, um, looking at, at uh, using vans and, and, and those kinds of, of, of uh, methods. Uh, and it became clear pretty quickly that um, logistically it, it wouldn't help in terms of really enhancing um, uh, what IOP is all about. These people would, would get on a bus and they'd have to go to multiple stops and they might be on the bus a couple hours. Or not everyone could fit on a bus and they'd be sitting back at the hospital for a couple of hours. And so, so that just innately didn't make sense to us. So we started to look at alternatives um, and uh, literally across the country. And we found uh, transportation programs similar to this that were being used for primary care and other specialties at hospitals um, for a number of reasons, not the least of which was they were patients weren't showing up. Uh, and there's a cost associated with that. There's a there's a there's a loss in terms of cost, and then there's also a loss in terms of revenues. So from there, we did some more investigation and found out that the core model for this um, made sense to us, but no one was doing it in uh, addiction medicine or in behavioral health. So we had to think in terms of of how could we apply it to this. And as a result of that. Um, we, uh, we researched a company called Circulation on the East Coast that had come up with a web-based platform that would interface with Uber and help us manage the process, both in terms of the front end on the ride side, if you will, but also on the back end in terms of, of uh, the, the accounting component, um, outcomes, uh, data. Uh, and that was really beneficial because what that's going to do, it's going to allow us to conduct research and measure real outcomes. And not just outcomes in terms of how many people took rides or how, what, what was the distance, although it's been pretty significant. We, we have, in the first eight and a half weeks, we've provided 256 rides uh, that have spanned, interestingly enough, over 1,700 miles uh, with 15 new clients. Wow. And, uh, and the most important piece of all of that is that we have a 100% attendance rate. Not one of those new clients has missed a session. One of the first programs we profiled with the intention of promoting it for adoption to other communities was the quick response teams. Dan Malloy shared the genesis of the QRT teams in episode 25. We knew there was definitely a problem, but we needed to learn as much as we could about it. And what we learned initially was that a lot of folks that are wanting help don't have any idea where to find help. And even from a family perspective, um, they didn't know where to turn or they don't have the resources to turn to and find help. So we, as we were meeting people in this world, we realized that that was a shortfall and that we would probably be dealing with a lot of folks who are asking the same questions. So we partnered up with a group called the Community Recovery Project org uh, who had created a resource document. Actually, we call that our re recovery resource packet. And that packet provides a lot of um, phone numbers, contacts, definitions, understanding, so people know what, who, the, who to call, who can they call, what, you know, um, inpatient, outpatient service capabilities there are. And they can actually get something at the time of the incident and know that they can make a phone call and not be helpless or wondering, where do I turn? That was a, very well received. And we started doing that August 1st of 2014. And every 
overdose incident that we responded to, we provided that. Now, we didn't order any of our police or fire to, to give that out. We wanted to, again, work within the organization and change a culture that was kind of cynical towards all the negative that's associated with the crime, the family troubles associated with it, the neighborhood troubles, and all the things that go on from the police side, as well as the repeat run volume that's associated with you know, responding to the same family or the same person three times within a week for, this, for an overdose. We needed to change the ideology or the perspective of our first responders to say, you know what, we have a job, we're committed to, to saving lives, making a positive impact, and do the right things. We don't get to pick and choose what those situations are. We just have to be the most professional in our service and commit ourselves to doing the right thing every time to no matter who dials 911 or who asks us to provide that level of service. One of the challenges Dan Malloy and Nan Franks and the rest of their QRT teams faced early on was the wait times to get people into treatment. We met a group that studied that problem and came up with a solution. On episode 196, Raj Gupta introduced us to findlocaltreatment.com. What we realized as we talked to many providers is if we expect providers to, you know, to email us every single time there's a change, it simply is, a, is an unrealistic expectation to have. And the reason is so much is changing um, every single week, not just capacity, but, you know, insurance contracts are being renegotiated. Um, and, you know, these providers are moving as, as the demand of the community moves. So if in six months, you know, alcoholism becomes more pressing, then, you know, they change their services to, to address that need. So we knew from the very beginning that if a real-time system like this was to be built, we had to figure out a way that providers are updating this information um, every day. Um, and that's, and that's, what, that's what is happening in Cincinnati and, and hopefully um, in other parts of the state as well. Next. Raj shares the secret of what motivates providers to update the platform with their information daily. The, the technology component of this platform, you know, makes it so that for providers to update their capacity daily, um, it really is something that's like automated um, on our end, and it takes them less than five seconds in a day to indicate if they are or not. So we tested many, many different ways um, where we could ensure that it takes providers less than three minutes in a month to provide that information every single day, um, you know, so that people in the community and families can see real-time information. The second component that makes this all work is an incentive. Um, you know, the way that our information um, is displayed on the website depends on whose information is most up-to-date. So if you don't update every single day, then that, then you just aren't um, shown as, as the first option to people that are searching. And what that does is it creates an environment where um, where we've made it extremely simple for providers to update their information and there's a very strong incentive to do so. Usually, getting someone the help they need involves more than one provider, who each have their own patient record systems and no provision for sharing data. In episode 196, we also talked with Dr. Larry Graham, who shared how they made it possible for providers to share patient data. They enabled each of these agencies in our collaborative group to access our electronic medical records free of charge to them. And so that really did truncate their intake process, which, as, you, as you've mentioned, sometimes was taking as long as 75 minutes. Well, now, you know, for me, that was senseless because we have the demographic information. We have their insurance information, if they have insurance. We've done a talk screen. We have their, H, their history and physical. So 
so now we provide all of that so that, you know, you don't have to recollect that information. And so intake can be as little as 15 to 20 minutes. And so that immediately, you know, quadrupled their ability uh, to get people into their clinic. Many heroin addicts have burnt bridges with their entire family. In episode 95, we met Sheriff John Tharp from Toledo, Ohio, who founded the Drug Abuse Response Team, or DART, an outreach program designed to help those struggling with opioid addiction and help their families as well. People that have burnt bridges with their mothers, their fathers, their sisters, their brothers, uh, their wives, you know, or um, husbands, uh, those people, are, they still love them, and it's their family, and they want the best for their family. There are families that are thinking, you know, an entire family would be better off if that person was dead. Uh, they've come to that conclusion. The family has come to that conclusion mm, okay. of, about the person that is addicted. Yeah. They have stole from them. They have mm-hmm. ripped them off. They've done so much. Uh, their family is in uh, turmoil because of the addiction. So they've many families have washed their hands, the family member that is addicted. Yeah. And, but when we approach the family and we talk to the family and we tell them what we are doing with their loved one and how we can help is that we can just see a, the eyes and the faces that how, you know, something has come to them, that how lucky they are to be able to have somebody to step up is going to help their loved ones. And so then we build this relationship back again. And sometimes we don't. Uh, some people will never let those people back in their families again, but oftentimes they will because that's their loved ones. We look at uh, 30 days, 60 days, uh, continue to follow up a year, two years. So, so we actually have it geared for two years. In episode 55, we profiled the ALTO program, where the attending physicians only offered opioids as a last resort to manage pain in the ED. Dr. Mark Rosenberg from St. Joseph Healthcare in Patterson, New Jersey, shared with us a surprising additional benefit of the program. Most patients, if I can alleviate their pain and get them comfortable, are delighted not to have opioids. We have very, very few who are coming in demanding opioids, and when they demand without giving alternatives a chance first, makes us sometimes think that maybe there is uh, an alternative reason that the patient is demanding opioids. Uh. For instance, if they are um, dependent on opioids and they're trying to get more or if they are selling opioids on the on the street or in, in the black market, many times they'll come to the emergency department seeking opioids, and they may ask for them by specific brand name. I don't ever want to suggest that a, or label a patient as a drug seeker or a drug user, but clearly there is a problem in society right now with tremendous opioid use, uh, abuse, and deaths from opioids and heroin. So, and <clears throat> that's one thing that you mentioned the other day, is that uh, abusers kind of are not showing up in the numbers they used to. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Greg, I got a call from uh, one of my friends who runs an emergency department just north of St. Joseph's in Patterson, New Jersey. And he said, uh, Mark, what, what are you doing all of a sudden, I'm getting all your drug seekers and your drug abusers, and they're not going to your hospital. Are you sending them here? And it really became, I became aware of the fact that people who wanted to abuse opioids 
or wanted to sell them or had other plans for them other than needing them for their acute pain were no longer coming to St. Joe's because they knew we would treat them with alternatives. Instead, they're going to other hospitals. In fact, I believe very strongly if all hospitals would use Alto principles for acute pain, that we can really stop a lot of the prescriptions for opioids, and we can also drive the drug, the people who are abusing the opioids, into treatment programs. Harm reduction is a set of practical strategies and ideas aimed at reducing negative consequences associated with drug use for the user. We've featured well-known harm reduction programs on several of our podcasts. In 2016, fentanyl started showing up in heroin on the street across the country. We learned about a little-known harm reduction tool, fentanyl test strips, from a trial program at a syringe exchange in the Bronx, New York. Van Asher from St. Anne's Corner of Harm Reduction introduced us to test strips in episode 103. We are seeing deaths at a rate that we've never experienced in New York. Um, They're surpassing what we were seeing with HIV at its height in the early 90s when I was in this field. Um, They're estimating 1,300 fatalities for accidental overdose in New York last year. You know, in the previous years, it was under 900. So in in the less than the last decade, it's been up over 150%. And that's, it's just staggering. Initially, it was 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 kind of the trial test. We wanted to see if people would use them, what their feedback was, and, you know, people are coming in and asking for them now. And so we're we're going to amp up and make it uh more more available. In episode 40, we learned about another little-known program, SPOT, that supportive program for observation and treatment, a program in Boston's inner city. We spoke with the chief medical officer for Boston Healthcare for the homeless, Dr. Jesse Gaeta. SPOT is, you know, a very explicit harm reduction program, which is sometimes a, a shift for, for a health center um, to make. So I can tell you a little bit more about SPOT. Mm-hmm. We have decided that we wanted to figure out how in this building to um, respond in a more effective way. Um, to overdoses, maybe even prevent the overdose. We certainly want to make sure that no one's going to die from an overdose. So our very first goal is prevent fatal overdose. So what can we do? What kind of program can we build for someone who's actively using right now to prevent overdose? Well, there's lots of answers to that question, but the thing that's been missing for us is having a place where people can go when they are intoxicated and maybe dangerously so, very sedated, um, so that they're not alone and they're not in public, they're not on a street corner with you know, with no medical response nearby. Um, that's sort of the explicit goal of SPOT. We, we, uh, yeah, we, we basically wanted to find some street-level space. We didn't have much. We decided to convert an old conference room that's large into this clinical programming. It's right on the inside of our front door, right in our lobby, um, and it's a quiet spot tucked away there um, where people can just walk in and in fact, they don't even have to give us their name. Um, people are very fearful that of what our intention is. They're, they're fearful of um, being arrested. They're fearful of being judged. We've had to really sort of build up some rapport and some street credibility. And one way to just decrease barriers um, as much as possible is to even say, gosh, you know what? You don't even have to tell us your name if you don't want to. Um, 
And so people walk right in, and usually they come in because they've used more than they usually have, um, or someone brings them in, a friend or a passerby um, brings them in from the surrounding block here uh, because they're not really able to stay awake anymore, and they're, you know, in the middle of the street, um, or they're, you know, sort of slumped against a building, and they're still breathing, and you're not really sure what to do with this person. So I was explaining how I sometimes come across people walking in from the parking garage and maybe people in urban areas especially or maybe families even um, at home have have had this this conundrum of you see that somebody's sedated, um, that they've just used a substance, but you're not really sure if... um, you know, if, if they need to be in an emergency room, you're not sure if you call 911 or are they okay because they're still breathing. Um, and I think it's really hard to know that when you come across somebody who's in a bad way. You don't know if the drugs are um, not yet at peak effect and their breathing is actually going to stop in 15 or 20 minutes, or is it on the other side of, 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 of this use and, and the drugs are beginning to wear off and they're going to be just fine and able to walk away in a little while. Sure. You really have no idea. Yeah, that's a good um, point. Yeah. So this program was really one in which we wanted people to feel like they could come in or bring someone else in when they needed to be monitored because they just weren't sure what was going to happen. Um, and so people usually will walk in or be carried in, and they're initially often able to still to talk to us, maybe just slightly. And the thing that we commonly hear is, look, um, I got, this is what I took today, and I'm just worried. It's a little more than I usually take, and, and I'm worried. Do you mind if I just stay here for a little while? Or sometimes we'll hear, um, you know, my friend overdosed today. He used the same stuff that I'm using now. I'm just, I'm just nervous that it's not going to go well today. Do you mind if I stay? The rehab industry is a $35 billion a year business where people are routinely exploited. In episode 158, we spoke with Ben Court, an industry consultant, about how some call centers are conducting real-time auctions for rehab leads. There are a couple of services out there that actually um, do a real-time auction based on patients' um, demographic data. So a lot of the times you'll call into these call centers, and I know the, um, the, the doctor and the Times did this as well, and I've made a bunch of kind of secret shopper calls, but you call in, they'll take basic information. Um, and then you go on hold, and the value of your lead is, is based on a couple of things, uh, but most of it is your uh, ability to pay, your insurance, your cash position, et cetera, and then it's you know, age and gender and drugs of choice and that sort of thing. And um, it, it's a little bit like eBay. You know, you'll, you'll have folks who will kind of pre-register to not go above a certain dollar mark for uh, certain types of clients. And, you know, this sort of thing exists in lots of different businesses, uh, I guess lots of different um, spaces and in different industries. And in many of them, it's not an issue. It's just the person who's willing to pay the most for uh, a lead, a business lead, ends up getting it. The problem with using this sort of tactic inside of our space is it really promotes this um, one-size-fits-all idea to addiction treatment that all you have to do is pair up um, someone with substance use disorder with someone who has hung a sign out front and said that they're a treatment program. Uh, The treatment of substance use disorder and the co-occurring mental health disorders that oftentimes accompany it is one of the most complex um, medical conditions that, that we grapple with inside of our society. So you can't match somebody up with the best treatment based on 
how old they are and how much money they have to pay. You've you got to go a little bit deeper than that. We learned about patient brokering and the Florida shuffle from Palm Beach County State Attorney Dave Ehrenberg in Episode 182. The easiest way to describe patient brokering is pay to play. It is when your medical decisions are based not on what is best for you, but what gets people rich, what makes people money. There are four types of patient brokering. One, you have an offer or a payment of any commission, bonus, rebate, kickback, or bribe, uh, to engage in a split fee arrangement. It's to induce the referral of patients to and from healthcare providers. So how would I recognize that? You know, I'm a mom or a dad. I'm looking for help out there. And, you know, how do I know that this is going on? Well, is someone offering to pay you money, a kickback, a bribe, anything in uh, a value to go to a certain medical facility? For example, is someone offering you a free plane ticket to fly down to Palm Beach County to enter into rehab? That is patient brokering. That is a felony. So that's my red flag. When somebody offers me something like that, a big inducement, such as a free plane flight. Right. Now, the solicitation and the receiving of the payment is also patient brokering. So both sides can be charged with a felony. But really, the people that we target are the marketers and others who pay people to enter into rehab, who shuttle individuals in recovery from place to place, from rehab to rehab. And it is called the Florida Shuffle because the goal is to get everyone rich, not to get people healthy. All of us who have lost loved ones to the opioid epidemic hope that by sharing our experiences with our loved ones, we might spare another family the heartache that we've felt. Ken Daniels, the broadcaster for the Detroit Red Wings, shared his son's tragic story and his firsthand account of the Florida shuffle in episode 185. Jamie was going to meetings, and that's where he met up with this kid, Kate Potter, who was in the E60 piece, who basically told him he had a home that was $50 a month. Now, I knew nothing about Kate, although Jamie did tell me that uh, he had a friend and told me he was leaving and going to live at this other place. And I said, I don't want you leaving. He goes, Dad, it's 50 bucks a month. It's all covered by insurance. Now, he sent me the forms that were that he signed that were covered by insurance, and this rent was $50 a month. Now, Cade, in the piece that was on ESPN E60, said that he had patient broker kiss but didn't patient broker Jamie. Patient broker meaning you go to meetings, you are paid by that so-called sober living home, which is anything but sober, where anyone can open up, uh, rent out a place, and call it a sober living home to, to build the industry. And where Jamie met Cade... It, it could have been at a meeting, et cetera. Now, Kate said he didn't patient broker Jamie. Maybe that's semantics, and Jamie said, yeah, I'm looking to get out. The kids said, well, i got a place for you to live. So did he go see Jamie with a suitcase and bring it back? No, probably not. But I would bet you dollars to donuts that when Kate walked in with Jamie to that home that wasn't sober, said, hey, I've got a new guy to live here. I'm sure that Kate probably got paid by the owner of that home bring another body, and then that body being Jamie, who will, they will then send to a specific doctor, and the doctor will order more lab tests and peeing in a cup, way more than he needs. That gets sent to the lab from that doctor. The lab then fills the insurance company and then pays off the lab, pays off the doctor, back to the home, and there you go. That's the broken recovery industry in Florida and many other states now. That's how it works. As we conclude this 200th podcast in this series, 
I want to thank all the people that have generously given their time to share their knowledge to make us all just a little bit smarter. I would also like to thank my staff and our producer, DJ Nivens, who week after week takes what I provide, that's usually a little rough around the edges, and turns it into a finished podcast we can all be proud of. And lastly, and most importantly, thank you for listening and supporting our podcast about people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.